the gloriousness and the opportunity of the evening is certainly, again, something for which we can be greatly appreciative and thankful. The opportunity, in fact, to lift our voices in song by the wonderful singing, the hymns of encouragement that we have, in fact, hymned together, the prayer that we have so wondrously been able to offer to, to the throne of, of, of heaven, and also the opportunity to look deeply into the Word of God tonight. Certainly we can hope that each has had a good day, a good afternoon, and what better way to perhaps close it as the shades of evening gather about than to do so by honoring and revering the God of heaven. We read in Psalm 89 verse 7 that God is to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. Thus when we meet and offer the reverence and honor to his name, we are doing that which he finds pleasing. We're doing that which brings him glory. As you probably have noted in the bulletin as well as again on the wall to my left, to the title of the lesson this evening has to do with Solomon's wisdom. I would ask that for the next few moments we devote some attention to thinking about a few of the things that Solomon's wisdom led him to share. And as we are reminded of them, I believe we'll be greatly overwhelmed by the thought that though that wisdom was set forth in today and in an age that is very ancient by our standards, it is still as needful it is still as prevalent, and it is still as appropriate in order to be pleasing unto God. In fact, by way of introduction, a few things about the matters concerning Solomon might well be in order. As we look through the character of the Word of God over and over again, we are in fact reminded that this text, the Bible itself, is unlike all the other books that you and I might have occasion to read. Every Word of God is tried that means it's pure, Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. And didn't Paul affirm that all Scripture is given of inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works? Those are the last two verses of 2 Timothy 3. And in the realization of their statement, that which is presented to us, I believe the idea of wisdom is even found there, at least indirectly. I suspect, though, that when any of us are asked, who's the wisest man other than the Lord that ever lived? Even our youngsters in the Sunday school classes and Wednesday evening classes learn to appreciate, for the most part, the wisdom of Solomon. And so tonight, might we look at least briefly and consider some of the things that we might well appreciate about the wisdom of Solomon. Might we also remember that even Jesus made reference to the greatness of Solomon in his day, but he was quick to affirm a greater than Solomon is here. Did he not in Matthew chapter 11 and 12? What was it then about Solomon's wisdom that led the Lord to compliment that wisdom? What was it that Solomon proclaimed, the type of things that he endorsed that led even the Son of God to make statements about the worthiness of some of the statements of his wisdom? I would ask that as we look at those tonight, might we begin in the following way? By first making note of some of the initial remarks, giving us a means of understanding the way in which Solomon came to be that wise. After all, you and I could not claim to have that degree of wisdom. And here's the reason why. Might we remember that David, the very father of Solomon, even before he passed away, made a marvelous and wonderful set of statements to his son. And he urged Solomon to appreciate that you walk faithfully with the Lord and do not pass to the left or to the right. And in that way you shall find great blessing and honor from the nature of God himself. 
We find those words both in the Kings and in the Chronicles of the Old Testament. David, you see, understood that for his son to be the kind of person he ought to be, needed to have a life based upon Jesus, or rather upon the revelation of God. Today, in a very marvelous principle, it is no different. Didn't Paul say, There for no other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus? 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. The nature then of the foundation that is being laid, in fact, no doubt rested often upon the mind of Solomon. And he did begin his reign with a desire to do so with the blessing of heaven and with the rightness of God's will. That does bring us, though, to 1 Kings chapter 3. Shortly after the character of his reign began, a very overwhelming scene came to be the case in the life of Solomon. In fact, God himself appeared to Solomon one night. And in the course of the events of that evening, perhaps in a dream if you please, God said, Ask anything, and I will give it unto thee. Here we might notice that Solomon was granted the capability of asking anything of the Lord, and God promised that he would provide it, that he would make it available unto him. Isn't it interesting that as Solomon, in the course of that and the next morning, made his request unto God, we even find record that there were many things he could have asked for, and even God affirmed it. He could have asked for length of life. He could have asked for military victory over his enemies. He could have asked for a great name so that all would be aware of who he was and what he had accomplished. And yet Solomon did not ask for any of that. He, in humbleness and in a powerful note of humility, said, Give thy servant an understanding heart. Solomon understood that I am in the midst of this, thy great people. How can I go out and come in? Give me a wise and an understanding heart. With that great petition, God was well pleased. And in fact, so well pleased was he that he not only granted the thing that Solomon requested, he even granted those things that Solomon did not ask for. Thus, Solomon was wealthy. His name as king over Israel was known far and wide, so much so that even the queen of Sheba came from a great distance to behold the honor and the majesty of King Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. But you and I well notice that the thing that Solomon did request was wisdom. And God, in fact, granted that request of him. You and I have the opportunity to see in the Old Testament some of the ways that Solomon did use that wisdom. In 1 Kings chapter 4, he employed it in terms of judge, but also in gathering the means whereby he could have the temple constructed and to have the temple built. Later, though, you and I today are still the beneficiaries of some of that wisdom because Solomon wrote some of the books of the Old Testament. For instance, the book of Proverbs. We understand that even chapter 1 details us that Solomon wrote that. Mentioned again in chapter 25, these are the Proverbs of Solomon. And so when we read the book of Proverbs, we have first-hand witness and evidence of the wisdom and of the wiseness that Solomon had been blessed with by God. Not only the book of Proverbs, but the book of Ecclesiastes was also written by Solomon. And as we shall learn in due course of the lesson tonight, some of the things in the Ecclesiastes remind us about the fact that he wasn't a perfect man. But we can still learn some wonderful truths from his wisdom. Finally, we might notice the song of Solomon. 
There are some who would perhaps look upon that book with less degree of worthiness than the others, but it still is an inspired book of the Old Testament. And in its eight chapters, it does set forth the overwhelming beauty of love in the marriage bond and how that that love is pure and pristine and does have the blessing of heaven itself. Might we thus notice those three books penned by this gentleman of the Old Testament? And as we look upon them, we can learn much of the wisdom and be blessed even today in accordance thereto. As one looks a little bit further into this life of Solomon and appreciates some of the next things that might be shared, I would ask that we at least make an interesting dis distinction between knowledge on the one hand and wisdom on the other. And that, in fact, is one of our first major lessons of our study time tonight. We are well aware already that Solomon asked for wisdom, and he asked for an understanding heart. But today, in our world, it's far too often the case, it would seem, that knowledge is confused with wisdom. Quite often, we see almost an interchangeability of them, when in fact, in the Bible, they are not the same. I've tried to list for you some initial features, some thoughts that help us distinguish these matters. First, let's define knowledge. Knowledge, in fact, by definition, is the awareness, the perception, the understanding of facts. And isn't it interesting that we often encourage our youngsters and others in our world to be knowledgeable, to come to know a whole host of facts. But that, again, is distinct from, and in fact, rather distinct from, the nature of wisdom itself. Because isn't it amazing? The Bible places more emphasis upon wisdom than it does upon knowledge. It's not to say that knowledge is unimportant. We perhaps can each recollect instances in which we are admonished to know certain things about, uh, to have certain ideas about knowledge. Amongst the Christian graces, in fact, isn't it true that we're to add to our faith virtue and to virtue knowledge? 2 Peter 1, verses 5 and 6. But listen to some of the ways in which wisdom is honored, in which wisdom is set forth, and also by way of definition. Wisdom is that quality, and you might read that on the screen. It is that quality of having and showing good judgment, that which is in accordance to discreetness, that which goes hand in hand, you see, with prudence. There is one thing to have a great repository of facts at hand. It's altogether another to be able to use that information in a way that's in the best interest of oneself and in a way that has the best interest of others. And as we shall see tonight, to use it in a way that in fact brings proper honor and proper glory to God. The two things are very different. Isn't it true that in our world today, there are many who are very knowledgeable? Those who have a string of MDLs and PhDs and MSs and MAs and AAs and all other kinds of letters behind their name, indicating vastness of education. But yet, in a real sense, they are bereft of the most precious wisdom of all. For they have not yet bowed in submission to the Son of God. They haven't turned their life over into honorable obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're thus very knowledgeable according to the ways of the world. But in the very real way of what's most important of all, they are absolutely foolish. They are fools in the very eyes of heaven. That realization, that recognition, perhaps leads us to notice a few texts where Paul had to deal with this. 
we are well aware that Corinth was perhaps one of the most highly regarded cities of the ancient world because of the degree of estimation of knowledge that was there. The Athenians were people in Acts 17 who loved nothing better than to discuss some new thing. Oh, they found it so intellectually stimulating. They found it so inviting to discuss these new philosophies, these ideas that were presented to them. Isn't it any wonder then in 1 Corinthians 1 when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he reminded them that the Jews seek a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom. They seek it, but in their recognition of what truly is the proper order of life, they are not going to find it when they never lift their eyes beyond the mundane matters of carnality. The things that men's wisdom presents are far below the plane of God's wisdom. That's only one text of others that I ask you to consider with me. We could, in fact, go as far back as Eve in Genesis chapter 3. There she knew the commandment of God. And notice that was not any lengthy set of facts. It really was only a few. There's a tree in the midst of the garden, and you aren't to touch it. You aren't to take of its fruit. You aren't to, in fact, even so much as to, to lay hold upon it. She knew the facts. The thing she lacked was wisdom. You see again how distinct they are. Even today, isn't it still true, a man may know the sinfulness of adultery, but yet he gives in anyway. A lady may know various and sundry other types of things that are evil, and yet under the image of the tempter, we give in anyway. We aren't acting very wisely, are we? So much so that the very last text upon that page reminds us that there are some descriptions in the Roman letter that seem to match so well individuals in our world today. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Isn't it amazing how simple that verse is, and yet how profound all at the same time. There are those who could argue for a month on some particular theme and topic, and all the while make great eloquent presentations and speeches. And all the while, every word they present does nothing but declare them a fool. Those in the world who refuse to honor the God of heaven, those who, in fact, refuse to pay homage and reverence to the very one who fashioned and made them, though they may profess to be wise, they honestly and quite frankly make themselves out to be fools. Later on in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 20 and following, as Paul, in fact, wrote again to that church in Corinth, he reminded them that they were in the hot seat of those who pursue human wisdom. Today, my friend, we must also be very cautious. I know that from time to time we make statements in our Bible classes, but there's always a good order in being reminded of the fact that the wisdom of the world is utter foolishness and nonsense in the eyes of God. You and I, thus, when we are encouraged by the tempter, when the others round about us encourage us to do various and sundry things that truly are in violation of God's will, it can seem so tempting to engage in it. It seems pleasurable. It seems fun. It seems to gain us notoriety and it gains us popularity and fame and fortune, perhaps. Friend, it'll bring a smile to Satan if we give in. Because the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 23 to 28. The degree then of wisdom is one of the things I'd submit to you that Solomon at least can teach us. For when he had the opportunity to ask for anything, he wanted wisdom. 
How important is wisdom to you and to me? Do we desire it above riches, above worldly fame and fortune? If God gave you and me the opportunity today to ask anything, what would you and I ask for? Would it be wisdom, understanding, a heart very well aware of the greatness of the things God has in store beyond this life and to help us properly order our life here so that we could be the recipients of it there? Again, we would have to compliment Solomon because God did in his request for wisdom and in his request for understanding. Today, where does wisdom come from? Should we expect God to, in fact, miraculously give it to you and to me? I would submit to you that the Bible informs us where the source of wisdom is. Let's look at some of the passages where that idea is set forth. In Psalm 19, verse number 7, we learn that God's Word is the repository of wisdom. It is there as we thumb its pages and allow the concepts to rest in our mind. When we allow them to direct us, we will become wise. It's true, isn't it? The world may not see us as wise, but that's all right. We know that the one higher than the world considers us wise, and even as the old preacher the long ago said, Lord, that's enough. Not only that, might we notice also that statement in Proverbs 8, verses 22 and following. Where does wisdom come from? God is the source of it. He is the one that provides it and makes it available. That leads us to see, and youngsters, perhaps for a moment, let me also give you just a little word that ties into this thought. Those teachers who certainly are highly schooled, and they will attempt on occasion to embed into your heart many ideas and many things. Always weigh what they say in the light of Scripture. Consider what they say as that which truly is from men. But always allow God's Word to be the final premise and the final matter to present and to dictate that which they say is either that which is right or that which ultimately must be called into question. Not only that text. In Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, that wise prophet of old, in fact, uttered the interesting affirmation that that person is not wise if he does not know the Lord. Today, let that again ring often in our ears. And thus, never let us allow God to be distant from us, because only in an alliance with Him, and if we know Him, truly are we wise. That degree of wisdom is seen also in the grandness of Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't it amazing that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are housed in Christ? Colossians 2, verse number 3. When we consider the book of Colossians, and I believe we've used the image of this idea before, think about your life and mine as a circle on a piece of paper. There is one very special point with respect to any circle that you and I might draw, and it's the thing that's at the center. Because, in fact, that is the definition of a circle. It's a set of points equidistant from a given point. That thing that should be the center of your life and mine is Jesus Christ. And if He's not at the center, if He's not on the throne of your heart and mine, there's a problem. In fact, there is an enormous problem because our life is off-center. I've always thought that's a lovely illustration. For any point not in the center of that circle is off the center. And so it is with your life and mine if the Lord is not at the center. Didn't we read in Acts 10 verse 36, He, speaking of Christ, is Lord of all. 
The lordship thus that he has over your life and mine is a majestic matter in which he truly is the lord of all our speech, our thinking, our actions. The wisdom thus that Solomon shared with us reminds us in James 1 verse 5 that if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not. If you and I thus are appreciative of becoming wiser, one of the things we can do is to pray about that. To pray that God will help us be better students of His Word and that He will grant us opportunity to learn more of it and that we can exemplify it daily in our life as we speak and as we think and as we interact with others even who are about us. In Proverbs 4 verse number 7 we read, Wisdom is the principal thing. With all thy getting, get wisdom and with understanding. How urgent thus are you and I as we pursue wisdom. Solomon said it is the principal thing. In Ecclesiastes 12 verse 1, Remember now thy Creator the days of thy youth. While the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. From the time that we're young, we should begin to ground ourselves, hopefully with the guidance of loving parents, who then with that guidance can instill within us that level of degree of desire so that even as we grow older, we still will have a desire and a conscience sufficiently trained that we will in fact be greatly bothered when we move aside from the teachings of the gospel. As we look then at the value of wisdom, I might submit that's only the first lesson of the two that we shall look at tonight. Another grand one from the very life of Solomon himself would in fact be a rather encompassing thing, for it has to do with the purpose and the mission of life. Why are you here? Why am I here? Philosophers have a whole host of answers that they can present to that, and quite frankly, some of them are rather disgusting. There have been those philosophers through the years who have asserted the most debased, the most debauched, the vilest of reasons as to why a given person or the human civilization is here. To all of that, it's nonsense. Only the Word of God presents the objective meaning and the objective purpose and mission of existence. Why I'm here, why you're here, why the human race is here. I would ask Solomon in his wisdom did utter those matters. Let's take a brief journey and look at some of the things to be seen in these matters. It's entirely fair to appreciate even at the outset of these notes, that Solomon, though he was wise because God had granted him that, he didn't always act wisely. He made some rather grievous mistakes. So grievous were some of them that you and I perhaps can wonder, how could a man that wise allow himself to act so foolishly? But yet, notice in 1 Kings 11, beginning in verse 1, we have perhaps the most oft-noted of his sins. He, in fact, allowed his wives to distract him from God. He turned his attention in the effort to please them. He committed idolatry. And in his effort to secure various wives and political alliances with various kingdoms, he chose rather to elevate their idolatrous wishes above his dedication to God himself. That's a sadness and it's a great tragedy. And Israel suffered enormously for that idolatry. But notice as we look at that, Solomon did experience many things in his life. His dad was the king, so likely anything when he was a boy that he wanted, 
David was able to get it for him. In 1 Kings 8, verse 25, that kind of note seems to have been made. But in addition to that text, in Ecclesiastes 2, beginning in verse 1, Solomon himself, due to the wealth that his empire possessed, he in fact himself noted, whatever mine eyes desired, I withheld not from them. All he had to do was give the order, and if he wanted something built, his workers would build it. If he wanted something procured, his laborers would procure it. Anything his eyes desired, it was satisfied for him. However, in that text, isn't it amazing that he himself noted many times in the Ecclesiastes, it's all vanity and vexation of spirit. If only our world today could learn that lesson. Here was a man as wealthy as any person living on earth today. In fact, estimates would say Bill Gates even doesn't come close to the wealth that Solomon had. And yet he, in honesty, could say all of it is vanity, striving after the wind. If life is not about then pursuing money and riches and cars and houses and popularity and fame and fortune, what is it about? Could it be that in his wisdom Solomon did know the answer to that, but he allowed himself to move aside from it for at least a while in his life? I would submit that it would seem the purpose of life is thus overwhelmingly provided to us in the book of Ecclesiastes. It is, in fact, the closing two verses of that book. It would seem that when the full circle is made, we have seen Solomon's journey throughout it, where he spoke about life, and he spoke about possessions, and he spoke about family, and he spoke about other things. And on occasion, they do have great importance. But Solomon, what is most important? What really stands above everything else in regard to significance, in regard to importance, in regard to a meaning, in regarding to mission? You won't find it in the philosophy textbooks up here at Tennessee Tech. Sadly, you will not, for I have looked through them. When I took the course, I know very well the kinds of things that various philosophers through the ages have proclaimed. Men like Immanuel Kant and others who have stated various and sundry other philosophies. The final matter reads like this. This is the answer to the purpose in life. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. At that point, there's a period. The book of Ecclesiastes closes. That's the answer. Let's go ahead and revisit at least the opening sentence or two. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. This is all of it. Not just a portion of the answer, not just one chapter of the full book of the answer. Solomon said this is all of it. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole of man. If you're reading in the King James translation, you might note that the word duty is quite likely in italics, meaning that the translators have supplied it. The actual, Greek, the actual Hebrew original word is, this is the whole of man. Everything that you and I are supposed to be doing, everything that provides sustenance, meaning, and objectivity to life is found in the character of obeying God, fearing Him, and keeping His commandments. 
that is so simple in the final analysis, isn't it? It doesn't take a PhD in Aristotelian logic to understand what's being said. One doesn't have to be a nuclear physicist to understand that sentence. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole of man. And notice it is couched in the language that there's a judgment coming. Verse 14, For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. The honest reflection upon the character of that statement helps us see the simplicity of what is to be your life and mine. The single focus, the premier objective, the zenith of, of objectivity is found in obeying God. Nothing else will provide life its meaning. Nothing else will give to life the fulfillment of its purpose, the fulfillment of its mission. Doesn't that lead us to see then that when this life is over, if in that matter and that one alone we have failed, then we are a failure. Because it doesn't matter what else we've accomplished. Maybe we had a million dollar house. Maybe in fact we had owned a half dozen cars. Maybe we had in fact been able to accomplish many other things from the worldly perspective. But if in that matter only we have not obeyed God and kept His commandments, what else is there then to matter? I'd submit there are some other verses which in fact seem to state a message very similar to this one. Let's listen to our Lord in Mark 8 verses 36 and 37. Jesus there said, For what is the whole duty of man? Notice as the Lord made that statement, What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Didn't the Lord answer it thus again? A man would give the entire world in exchange for his soul if on that grand day he is not found in the keeping, the safekeeping of God. We can then see the soul of man is very valuable. What's the only thing that can safeguard it? The gospel, obedience to God, faithfully keeping the commandments of the Master. No wonder then the earnestness and the simplicity of fearing God and keeping His commandments. In Proverbs 22, verse 1, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor more than, more than silver and gold. So often the world seems to place great emphasis upon money. And we need money to buy food and other things like that. But may we ever remember that money in the final analysis won't save the soul. Zephaniah 1, verses 17 and 18 remind us of that fact. Didn't Revelation 18 tell us the same? All thy riches are come to naught, the revelator told us. Even money couldn't save ancient Rome. When the death knell sounded from the trumpet of heaven, and Rome had met her fate because she had rebelled against the God of heaven, she was overcome because Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation 17, 14. He is the one that triumphed over the great Roman Empire and through the character of Christianity. Rome finally fell, and she has not risen again. You see, money couldn't save Rome, and it can't save you and me either. We can't buy our way into heaven. Though sometimes it may sound as though it's a bit funny, the message in it is very real. One does not see hearses pulling U-Hauls. Our money will not earn us, buy us a way into heaven. The character of some of the last things on that page remind us again true wisdom is found in obeying the commandments of God since it is a fact that we have seen in terms of the wisdom of Solomon and affirming the greatest mission of life 
I thought a poem would be, perhaps be in order to share this evening. And it does tie in very well with this. And unfortunately, I do not know who wrote the poem, nor do I know even the name of it. I came across it many years ago, and I may have even used it here before. It goes something like this. Out of this world I'm unable to take things of silver and gold that I make. All that I cherish and all that I keep I must leave behind when I fall asleep. I often wonder what I shall own in that other world where I go alone. What shall they hear and what shall they see in the soul that answers the call for me? Shall the great judge commend when my task is through, my spirit for gaining great riches too? Or at the last shall it be mine to find? All that I've worked for, I've left behind. It does harmonize rather well in some ways with the lesson this morning, doesn't it? What about the account that is being laid up there? If all that we work for is going to be left behind, isn't it true the bank account there, that spiritual account, will be empty? There'll be nothing in it for which the Savior can then bless us with an entrance into heaven. What about your degree of wisdom tonight and what about mine? Are you wise and do you pursue that wisdom with urgency? Or do we let it take a back seat in our life? Allow God to have the scraps of what I don't particularly need or want at the moment. God won't accept the scraps. One of the strongest statements in the book of Malachi, in fact, is that very idea, isn't it? When ancient Israel tried to give God what was left over, the prophet Malachi asked, try to give that to your governor and see if he'll take it. How much less do you think God will accept it? We need to make God our top priority. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole of man. When we appreciate that single mission, and we have our life revolving around, around that, our life will make sense. The things that take place will be seen to have an eternal purpose, and the matters that occur to us and for us will be on the bedrock truth of the great promise of the covenant of God. But if we have missed that, we have missed everything else. Nothing else in life will make sense. There will be a void that nothing else can fill. How full is your life then this evening? And how wise are you directing it? In wisdom, can we thus be like Solomon when he did ask God for wisdom and when he was directed rightly? May we not make the mistakes of being unfocused like him, following after the things the world has to offer. For true happiness will not be found there. Wisdom is the principal thing. Proverbs 4, verse number 7. Are you living a life then in the pattern and in the way of wisdom this very night? To be truly wise again means you need to know the Lord. Do you know Him? He did say on one occasion in a great sadness to many. Remember He said, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. That means they had never formalized a relationship with Him. They may have thought they knew him, but he didn't know them. Make sure that he knows you. He will know you when he writes your name into the book of life. He'll pin that name there as he's reading the Revelation when you render obedience unto him. Believe Jesus to be the only begotten Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess his majestic name as the Son of God and be baptized. Upon the activity in your baptism, you then will be saved. You can wear the name Christian. And you could proceed to work daily in the cause of the Savior. If you have become a Christian at some time in life, but maybe like Solomon, you've started to make mistakes that are public. You've done things that are disgraceful. 
and that have brought reproach to the church and to the, the spiritual family that loves you. Come back to your first love. Let them know that you're repenting. Let them know that you're making a change and you're not happy with the, things, the way things have been and that you want to come back to your first love. Tonight, if we could be of assistance in helping you do that, we'd be very honored to do that even now while together we stand and while we sing.